welcome to session six of our Colossians study. Today we'll be continuing in chapter two and we'll be focusing on verses 11 through 19. And we'll be continuing the discussion that we began last time regarding all the different heresies the Colossian church has been facing and how Paul has refuted each one in turn. Now last session we looked at the heresy of false philosophies and the focus on human traditions. And Paul refutes this by reminding them, and us, from verse 3, that true wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus, and in him alone can the fullness of God be found. Today, we'll look at the dangers of ritualism and legalism and the negative impact it can have on the life of a believer. So we'll begin in Colossians chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 19, from the CSB. You were also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with the growth from God. So I believe the takeaway from this passage, if if you don't remember anything else, is the fact that Jesus is enough. It's such a simple concept, yet we make it so complex. We humans are constantly trying to add to this, I mean, Jesus sums up how we should live like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But somehow people feel the need to add to this, to add rituals and regulations and legalistic practices, as if these things will make them more spiritual or more acceptable to God. Now, I'm not saying that all rituals are bad. I mean, the text mentions baptism and observing the Sabbath. But the problem is when the ritualistic action takes the place of or becomes more important than the person, Jesus, when the action overshadows the person. If you think about it, most, if not all, false religions are based on rituals the idea being that one achieves greater enlightenment or a closer relationship with their deity by following a set of continuous customary actions. The Colossian church faced a wide range of false teachings from Eastern mysticism to Greek philosophy to Jewish legalism. 
Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, personally, I don't engage in these types of practices. I don't engage in Jewish legalism or Eastern mysticism. But I was talking to my husband, Greg, the other day about this, about the relevance um, of this. And we were discussing the relevance of rituals in today's culture. And he said, well, what about the way we use our phones? Now, in the text, Paul is particularly addressing religious rituals, and our phones are not used for religious purposes, but I still think there's a point to be made here, because the reason that Paul is addressing these particular issues is because they are distracting them from their relationship with Jesus. They're causing them to shift focus away from God. Well, don't our phones have this capacity to do the same thing to us? Like Greg said, What's the first thing we do every morning? What's the last thing we do every night? How many times during the day do we check? What captures our attention and steals our focus more than our phones? I think these might be questions worth considering as we approach the text. So in verses 11 through 14, Paul shows us who we are in Christ that we were circumcised in Christ. We were buried with him in baptism. We were raised with him through faith. We've been made alive with him. And then in verses 16 through 19, Paul tells us, because this is who you are in Christ, don't let anyone judge you or condemn you by saying that you need to do more, that you need to add something more to your faith, that Jesus is not enough. So in verse 11, he begins with the idea of circumcision. Now remember from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14, that circumcision was meant to be an outward sign of one's covenant with God. But Paul is making the point here that the covenant that once came through circumcision now comes through Christ. You see, the false teachers were telling them that If you believers become circumcised and you watch your diets and you observe the holy days, you can achieve greater spiritual status. But the Jewish rite of circumcision no longer needs to be followed in order to follow Christ, because the covenant between God and man now comes through Jesus. It's now about the circumcision of the heart. That is what is needed. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Deuteronomy 36 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul. So because of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, the verse also tells us that we're able to put off our body of flesh, our sinful nature, or our body of flesh has been totally put off, or from the Greek, totally breaking away from. You see, we as Christians can break away from our old sinful nature because it no longer has power over us anymore. And maybe you're someone who needs to hear that today. I mean, maybe you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, but your past still haunts you. The devil continues to bring up all those old sins from your past, and it makes you feel unlovable or unforgivable. But take heart because you have been forgiven 
Verse 13 tells us that we have been forgiven all of our sins. They are no longer being held against you. You have been set free from your past, and you've been set free from its power. In verse 12, it gives us a beautiful picture of just what that transformation looks like as he describes baptism. The idea here being that the immersion into the baptismal waters symbolizes our death to our sinful nature and being raised out of the water to newness of life with Jesus. Just as Jesus died because of our sin and was raised by God's power. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in the heart of every believer. Think about that for a minute. The power that overcame death resides inside of you and me. I think if we Christians truly grasp this concept and we began to live like we had the power of God living inside us, imagine the impact that that would have on our world. I mean, the one who has power over sin and death lives inside us. What can't we do in the name of Jesus? What can't we overcome? Because of God's power over sin and death, you and I have been made alive. We have been made alive together with Jesus, according to verse 13. Because Jesus canceled the certificate of debt against us, it says in 14. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, has made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You have been saved by grace. You see, our sins are no longer held against us if we've been saved by his grace. So this certificate of debt that has been against us with all of its obligations that it mentions in verse 14, this is actually referring to the Jewish law and the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament. You see, the law stood against us because it pointed out our human flaws and the fact that humans on their own could never measure up to God's righteousness. Now, the law was given to Moses by God, so it was good, and it did have a purpose. It gave people a standard by which to live, and it pointed to our need for a Savior. The law in the Old Testament reveals and warns of sin, but it cannot prevent sin or redeem the sinner. Only grace can do that. So the law, which stood unfulfilled because of our inability to measure up to it, has been fulfilled in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are no longer bound by the law. It has been nailed to the cross, according to verse 14. Incidentally, did you know that an ancient method of canceling out a debt was to cross it out? or to stick a nail through it? Galatians 3.25 says that now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So if you and I are no longer bound by the law, does that mean that we can just disregard the Old Testament and only focus on the new? Well, Matthew 5.17, Jesus says that, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. 
First Timothy 1.8 says, We know the law is good if one uses it legitimately. You see, the Old Testament pointed out that we needed a Savior. And the New Testament tells us who that Savior is. You see, we can't have one without the other. And so verse 15 tells us that not only did Jesus cancel our debt, but he also disarmed the power of Satan and his demons over us. Not only did he disarm them, but he triumphed over them. This idea of triumph alludes to the triumphal parade of a general returning after a victory in battle. What Satan thought was his crowning achievement was his ultimate defeat. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection gave his followers power over the control of sin and power over the control of Satan. So we can be delivered from the demonic powers that inspire all of these false teachings and these false doctrines. 1 Timothy 4.1 says that the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So Paul has set the stage for who we are in Christ. We have power over sin. We have power over Satan. So don't let people judge you. As it says in verse 16, don't let anyone condemn you in verse 18 for what you believe. Don't let anyone convince you that Jesus isn't enough. Don't let anyone tell you that you need to add something to your faith in order to be acceptable to God. In the first century, it was strict adherence to dietary restrictions and following festivals. In 18, it was also asceticism which is severe avoidance of indulgence and severe self-discipline. They even incorporated worshiping angels in visions. So why did they seem to place such emphasis on religious rules and regulations? Well, in my opinion, it was because it was a visual, tangible way to see how they could measure up. They could measure their godliness by how many rituals they followed. You see, adhering to dietary restrictions and festivals and observing the Sabbath, this can all be done without God. But 1 Peter 1.16 tells us to be holy because I am holy. And you can't do that without Jesus. So in verse 17, it tells us that these things are a shadow. Now, what he's referring to is back in verse 16. So the rituals that he mentions in verse 16 about adherence to the festivals and adherence to to Sabbath day and um, the dietary restrictions, that all of these things are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is in Christ. So what is a shadow? What does a shadow do? Well, a shadow of a person isn't the actual person. It's evidence that the person is present. So these rituals that he mentions in verse 16 were meant to give evidence of Messiah, to give evidence of Jesus, to focus their attention on him. But they were not meant to be the substance of their faith. And I think the same thing holds true today. I mean, we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, and we go to church every Sunday, and these are good examples of rituals. But 
These should be reminders of our relationship with God. They should not take the place of our relationship with God. We must never let anyone condemn us for making Jesus the foundation of our faith and seeking holiness instead of trying to measure up to the standards given by men. Now, this is not easy because according to verse 18, it tells us that the false teachers, they're inflated, they're, they're puffed up by their own ideas and their own notions, that they're prideful and they're so positive about their own ideas and their own notions and that they are correct that they're not going to be afraid to judge you. 2 Timothy 3.5 tells us that, that these people hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid these people. Not only will they judge you and condemn you, but they might also sway you, as we learned last week. So we must avoid them. Because verse 19 tells us that they don't hold fast to the head, which is Jesus. Because that's how we truly grow as Christians by being connected to the head. True life and spirituality comes from a relationship with Christ. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Verse 19 says, From the head, the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and grows with the growth that is from God. Have you ever thought about how our physical bodies are a testament to Christ? I mean, this is a random thought, so take it for what it's worth, but do you think that maybe God designed our physical bodies the way that he did, making our heads the control center of our physical bodies in order for us to better understand how Jesus is the head of the church? Because our physical bodies are designed the way they are, we can truly understand Jesus' relationship to the church as the head of the body. So as we close today, may we never forget who we are in Christ. And may we never allow any ritualistic actions to divert our attention away from following him. So, The challenge for this week is to answer this question. Why do you do what you do? What is your motivation? Does it come from a desire to follow in the steps of Jesus? Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to meet with you again next time. God bless you.